more rightly, God. We need to love you more sincerely. Lord, we need you. We have not arrived. Lord, we desire to press on, to press forward in the life that you've called us to live. And so we come to you, Lord, our source. Lord Jesus, you are the head of the church. Lord, you're the chief shepherd of this church, of this local church. And Lord, we ask God that you would give us what we need. Lord Jesus, that you would shepherd us this morning, that you would be the Lord, our shepherd, and that you would cause our souls not to want. Lord, we pray that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your own namesake. And that you would restore our souls. Lord, we pray that you would cause us even today to feast on the rivers of your delight. And that you would satisfy us, Lord, even today with your abundant goodness. Lord, please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things that we all have to learn and that we're going to be reminded of this morning is that the motive behind your service to God is just as important as the service itself. It's something that's easy to forget. It's something that's easy to neglect because it's hard work. It's deep below the surface of the Christian life. And this morning, we're going to examine the why behind the what. Why do you do what you do? What makes you tick as a follower of Jesus? What do you burn with passion for in this life and in this world? Why do you do what you do? In our passage this morning, a sinful question is going to be asked to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he responds to that question, he's going to expose to us. The only proper motive for service in the kingdom of God. He's going to get to the why behind the what. The only acceptable why. The only acceptable uh, motive for service in the kingdom of God. So I want to invite you this morning, just as Ryan invited you to lean in and pray. I want to invite you this morning to lean in as we read God's word together. This is Matthew chapter 20. Beginning in verse 20, and we'll go to verse 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him and with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand, And one on your left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. And we're going to dive into this passage and we're going to begin this morning by taking up this, this sinful question that was put to the Lord Jesus. He is asked by the mother of the sons of Zebedee that her two sons could sit on the right and the left of Jesus in his kingdom. She's asking for the place of highest honor for her two sons in the kingdom. Now, we're going we're gonna, to several times this morning note some things about the immediate context. And I just want to mention this, that one chapter prior to this passage, in chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus made a specific special promise to the apostles. You remember that? When Ryan was preaching that text just a couple of weeks back. He told them that in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, he says, you're going to sit on 12 thrones in the regeneration, in the new world. They were given a special promise, a place of prominence in the kingdom of God. But what we see, not even a chapter after Jesus gave them that promise, that that wasn't enough, that they wanted more. These two sons of Zebedee wanted more than the other ten apostles. Now this question that they asked Jesus is related to a topic that keeps coming up over and over again in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has repetitively taught the 12, his disciples, that there is no place for pride or self-seeking in his kingdom. Continuously the Lord Jesus has exalted humility and condemned pride to his disciples. Think back with me really quick to Matthew 18, the first four verses. We, we walk into this conversation among the apostles that begins like this. Who do y'all think is the greatest among us? Who's the greatest among the 12? And Jesus enters into that conversation and he redirects their selfish ambition in chapter 18 verses 1 through 4 and he tells them that they're aspiring for the wrong things they're aspiring to be kings to be great ones to be the greatest and Jesus says listen you need to be aspiring to be like a little child a lowly little child and even like a servant or or even lower than that you need to aspire to be like a slave he knew that they were aiming for the wrong things and so he teaches them He tries to redirect their ambition, but they didn't learn. It comes up again, and this theme is summarized by the phrase that Jesus has used twice in the immediate context. Chapter 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verse 16, he says this. The first will be last, and the last will be first. That's the Lord Jesus' way of summing up this truth, this Teaching, if you want to be first, you're going to be last. But the way to greatness is to be last. The first will be last and the last 
will be first. But we come to this same theme again. It's happened three times already in two chapters. And here we are again dealing with the same exact subject matter. And this is not even going to be the last time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has to teach on humility and condemn pride. It's going to happen again in chapter 23, verses 8 through 12. Now, the repetitive, the repetitive nature of this teaching ought to grab our attention. It ought to show us something. It ought to give us a strong reminder of how deeply rooted this pride is, even in Christians, even in regenerated hearts, of how, of how deeply we must unlearn this old way of thinking. And so I want to remind you of that this morning, the repetitive nature of this teaching in Matthew's gospel indicates that this is one of the most fundamental natural instincts that must be unlearned by the followers of Jesus. Selfish ambition. Looking out for number one. Your eyes and your heart constantly on yourself. It's deeply rooted in us. It's deeply rooted in you. And you need the grace of God to turn that away from yourself and get your eyes on the Lord Jesus and on others. And what we see is just as consistently as Jesus has taught this message, equally as consistent these disciples have failed to learn this lesson from the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's hard to imagine a worse time question than this. You say, what do you mean? Verse 16, Jesus says, the first will be last. And verse 20, the disciples say, Jesus, can we be first? 16, the first will be last. Verse 20, Lord, Lord can we be first in, in your kingdom? And any parent can relate to this. You know what this is like, okay? You try to instill something in your children. And oftentimes, before you're even done, you know, with this grandiose point, they say something or engage in such a way that it is so clear that they didn't get what you just taught them. They didn't get that lesson. This is what we have here. This sinful question exposes this deeply rooted sin of pride and selfish ambition. Next we see Jesus' response, the Savior's response to this question. There are several things I want us to see here. First, I want you to note that Jesus responds with what I want to call this morning pointed patience. Pointed patience. I say patience because in verse 24, the other ten who hear this question asked to Jesus, the other ten in verse 24, we are told that they are indignant. They are ticked off about how dare you ask you know, that you could outdo us. Okay, so the ten are indignant, but we're not told that Jesus is indignant. We're not told that the Lord Jesus is filled with indignation at this question. We're, instead, what we see is patience. I mean, he, he's taught it three times already, and what does he do? He just leans in and teaches it again. Just like a godly, loving, patient parent. Kid doesn't get it the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, and they lean in and they do it again. We're going we're gonna to do this until you get it. He's patiently bearing with his disciples. And at the same time, he's pointed. 
He's pointed. Because Jesus clearly tells the sons of Zebedee and their mother that they're wrong. He says it this way in verse 22. You don't know what you're asking. You're wrong here. You don't even know what you're asking for in this question. So we have the pointed patience of the Lord Jesus. In verse 22, we actually have a plural pronoun in Jesus' response. And you could you know, read it you know, really literally in the southern translation of y'all don't know what you're talking about. Okay? And that's actually more helpful than it may realize because the way this sounds is that it's only the mother that's coming and making this request. And so what you would expect is Jesus says, you, singular, don't know what you're talking about. But what Jesus actually says is y'all don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're talking about. And that plural pronoun actually clarifies the mother's role. Because we have different perspectives in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel of this same story. In Matthew's gospel, the mother of the sons of Zebedee presents the request. But in Mark's gospel, the sons of Zebedee themselves present this request to Jesus. And so as we harmonize these two perspectives, we see that her role is not, you know, uh, that the sons are innocent and mom's just, you know, overzealous here. They're all in this together. You know, they're contriving this plan together. And what these sons have done is they've asked their mom to do their bidding for them. To present their request to the Lord Jesus. Interestingly, this is just an aside. This woman may be the aunt of Jesus Christ. The earthly aunt of Jesus Christ. The mother of the sons of Zebedee. She's mentioned one other time in the Gospels. And that's at the cross at the foot of Golgotha. We are told that a group of women followed the Lord Jesus. They were there at the crucifixion. And we're actually told at the end of Matthew's gospel that that this group of women followed Jesus wherever he went and they provided for Jesus' needs. And we have some different perspectives as we compare the four gospels. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that two Marys and the mother of the sons of Zebedee are at the foot of the cross. In Mark's gospel, we're told that two Marys and a woman named Salome is at the foot of the cross. And then in John's gospel, we're told that three Marys are at the foot of the cross and the sister of the mother of Jesus Christ. And so several scholars have made the observation that it is probable That this mother of the sons of Zebedee is mentioned three times in the Gospels in three different ways. She's the mother of the son of Zebedee. Her name is Salome and she is the sister of the mother of Jesus. Now we don't know that for sure. That's just a possibility trying to put the Gospel narratives together. But it's a possibility that this is why she felt so freely to come and ask for this preposterous thing. This over-the-moon request. She's transgressing these boundaries maybe because she feels very familiar with Jesus. 
We know that she is a follower of Jesus. A few chapters before this, we were told that disciples, usually the way this goes is they leave father, mother, lands, and children, and they follow Jesus and they get more. But here we get this little snapshot, encouraging snapshot, that not every mother is left behind when somebody comes to Christ. Sometimes when somebody comes to Jesus, mama comes too. Somebody's following the Lord Jesus and mama says, I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus too. This is a family of the followers of Christ, the family of Zebedee. This is misguided on her part, misguided parental love. Just like every Christian has to learn this truth, it's not about you. The world is not about you. Your life even is not about you. Also, every Christian parent has to learn it's not about your kids either. Just as much as it's not about you, it's not about your kids either. This world is about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 says that all things were made for Him. Invisible things, visible things, things above, things below. Everything was made for Jesus. This life, this world, and everything in it is for Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. And so this is misguided parental love. She has to learn that there's, there's, there, there's an exalted place in the kingdom of God for one person. He's the king. There's no other king in the kingdom of God. And everybody else is his servants. You got kings and servants in the kingdom and that's it. She has to learn that that applies not only to herself, but also to her children. And Jesus' response in, in verse 22, he indicates that the thing that they have failed to account for in making this request of Jesus is the great suffering that has to precede great honor in his kingdom. And so you got a progression here. He says, y'all don't know what you're asking. Can you drink my cup? And that cup is a reference to suffering. And his cup is a reference to the suffering that he's about to endure in just a few weeks in Jerusalem. He's going to drink the cup of suffering. So I want you to see this direct connection here. The ignorance behind their question is directly connected to ignorance about suffering. About suffering. And yet, what do they say? Without hesitation and equally without understanding, they say, we are able. We are able to drink that cup. Now, as we read Matthew's gospel, it's really clear that these sons of Zebedee have overcalculated their own zeal. They're the sons of thunder, but they think they got more than they actually have. They've overcalculated their loyalty to Jesus Christ because in Matthew 26, we're going to be told that these men are going to abandon Jesus in his hour of need, and they're going to run away from him in fear of 
the authorities. He said, I'll drink that cup, whatever it is, I'll drink it. Six chapters later, they're running away from the very suffering they professed that they would endure. They don't understand what they're saying. This is what Jesus is getting at. They don't understand what they're saying. But here's the thing. They soon will. They will understand. Soon they will see Jesus, their king, nailed to the cross. The one with all authority. The one who binds demons and heals diseases. And empties out whole cities of sicknesses. And they'll see him crucified. And then they'll understand more of what it means to be a follower of the Lamb. It doesn't mean grandiose greatness for yourself. It means suffering. For every Christian, it means suffering in this world. They're going to get a picture of Jesus reigning from the cross. And they're going to get this reminder of what it means to be on his right hand and his left hand. The only other time that phrase is used in Matthew's gospel is that, is that those who are crucified with Jesus. They're going to come to learn this. That to be a follower of Christ means to be rejected in this world. And they will also soon realize that to endure the suffering to which they have been called, they're going to need power from on high. They're going to need resources far beyond their own strength and their own zeal. They're going to need the Holy Spirit to empower them to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're going to learn this. In Matthew chapter 20, they don't understand what they're asking. Jesus says in verse 23, you will drink my cup. And history records that they did, in fact, drink a cup of suffering for Jesus Christ. And then they entered into eternal glory. Acts 12 tells us that James was the first Apostle to suffer martyrdom. He was cut down with the sword of Herod the ruler. He drank the cup, just like Jesus said. And then in Revelation 1, we are told that John was the first apostle to be exiled for the word of God. He drank the cup of suffering, just like Jesus said. He was an alien in this world, in chains for the word of God. And yet in their youthful zeal, they had no idea what awaited them in this world. Jesus says, y'all don't understand what you're asking. Matthew Henry is right. He says those who would ask for a crown should ask instead for grace to endure a cross. Jesus' response tells us that the Father is the one who has prepared the reward. And just like the Father has prepared the reward, the Father has also prepared suffering for every follower of Jesus. And this is a hard truth, but this is a consistent truth in God's word. I mean, the scriptures are so open about this truth, an open statement of the truth that you will suffer in this world. It's the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel. 
Listen to Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Excuse me, did you just say that was granted to me? I got the first thing that you would believe in Christ. So faith is granted to me. Got that. Excuse me. Did you say that you should also suffer for his sake? That was granted to me. Now, for honest, that's one of those gifts that we're ready to give back. I want a, I want a different gift. I don't want that gift. It's bad theology. That God gives us. All the good stuff and Satan is the one who gives us all the bad stuff. Blessing always comes from God. God never brings suffering in our life. It's bad theology. It's been granted that we would suffer with Christ for the sake of Christ. Suffering is one of the means that God uses in this world to conform us to the image of Jesus. It's not pointless. There's a holy design in the suffering of Christians. But Jesus is teaching these sons of thunder this inflexible principle in the kingdom of God. There will be no crowns without crosses. Not for anybody. Not for anybody. And here's the thing. This stuff is not easy to remember when you're suffering. This is something that we have to constantly revisit and come back to. Lord, you told me this. Lord, you told me it was for my good. Lord, you told me that it's preparing this eternal weight of glory. we got to fight the fight of faith in the furnace of affliction. You have to remind yourself of this your whole Christian life. That everything that God brings, everything that God permits, everything that God decrees in your life is for his glory and for your good. If you love God and if you're called according to his purpose. If you're a Christian. Acts chapter 14 verse 22. Newly planted churches. The first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And they plant these churches and then they come back to these churches. And the context says that they're strengthening the souls of disciples. And here's what they're saying. Acts 14 verse 22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We need to prepare each other to suffer well for Jesus' sake. Why? Because through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is all over the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. No cross, no crown. No cross, no crown. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. Think about how encouraging that is in the lowest lows of your life. Lord, help me to endure with you because I want to reign with you. This is the principle. 
suffering brothers and sisters this morning, I want you to be reminded that, that these momentary afflictions for Christians, we are told, are preparing something for us. They're doing something. They're not pointless. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, never-ending joy. They're conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus. And so Jesus' teaching here reminds us that Christian suffering is necessary. There's no way around it. You can't evade it. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And not only is it necessary, it's never wasted. God will not permit that any of the sufferings of his people be wasted. He won't. In all things, he works for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So this is, this is one aspect of you have no idea what you're asking. You're forgetting all about suffering. And there's a lot of suffering that awaits you in this world as a follower of Jesus. The second thing in Jesus' response is he readjusts their view of greatness and authority. He does this again. In verse 25, we see Jesus take an example from the way the fallen world typically thinks about great ones and rulers and authorities. He says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's talking about not just, you know, uh, that some have authority. Okay, That's God-ordained. He's talking about so often what we see in this world is the misuse of authority. The, the domineering uh, rulers, the domineering great ones that press down over those under them. That have this exalted position and they expect everybody under them to serve them. Jesus says, you know that, you've seen that. And the disciples did see that. They saw it every day with the Roman rulers occupying you know, Palestine. They saw it every day. Of bad examples of great ones. Bad examples of authority. He says, you know this. And then he builds a sharp contrast. He turns a 180 degrees directly around. And he says this, verse 26. It shall not be so among you. You know that stuff that you see all around you? Not so among you. This is an antithesis in the scriptures. There's a lot of times you hear people talking about things in the world that need to be redeemed. Okay, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, get that completely out of here. None of that stuff. It shall not be so among you. You have an exactly opposite perspective of ruling and authority and great ones. Not that. This instead. This is what Jesus says. Not so among you you it's wholesale rejected this worldly understanding selfish understanding of recognition status authority and power it is to be rejected wholesale soup to nuts the whole thing by every christian it shall not be so among you that's the word of the lord this correction is especially 
applicable to any Christian who finds themselves in authority over others. Whether it be police officers over citizens, husbands over wives, parents over children, and pastors over churches. Jesus says, take a long look around at the world. Take a little catalog of all the abuses of power that you see in this world and let that weight land on you. Not so among you. Not so among the followers of Jesus Christ. Our Lord calls us to a different standard. We're to be lights in a dark world. We're to be holy ones set apart for our God. And so Jesus does this so many times, doesn't he? He turns things directly upside down. And he does it again in this passage. Worldly greatness is like a pyramid with the great ones at the top and everybody else under them for the purpose of serving them. And this is a lot of ungodly husbands view of headship. That they, they, they suppose that God made them the leader of the family so that they could sit on the couch while their wife makes them a sandwich. It's worldly. Serve me, serve me, serve me. That's worldly. Worldly greatness is like a pyramid. And Jesus, what does he do? He flips it directly upside down. And he says greatness in his kingdom is those who see themselves at the bottom and who see others as more significant than themselves, who see their role in this world to lift up others, to use their authority, their power, their influence to serve others, to build them up, not to serve themselves. It doesn't mean that there won't be authority. You can't get rid of authority. Authority is everywhere. Authority has been woven into the fabric of creation. Jesus is not calling for scrapping authority. He's calling for the holy use of authority. The proper use is found in serving others, not yourself. Serving others, not yourself. It is interesting that this is the repeated identifying mark in these few chapters Chapters 18 through 20 so far. The repeated identifying mark of a great Christian is one who gladly becomes a servant and even a slave of others. Now I want to say this. I'm convinced that this principle is going to be the one, one of the ones that surprise us most in heaven. When we see... This principle fully play out that, oh, oh, really, Lord Jesus, the first really are last and the last really are first. I know you said it. I know you said it and I believe it. But think about how surprising this is going to be when it really comes to fruition. That the lowly ones that are constantly looked over are the first ones in the kingdom. That's exactly what he said. A servant is a person who is totally oriented towards others. You know, there are a lot of books in, you know, Christian bookstores along the lines of how to find God's will for your life. 
And there's a lot of really bad books in Christian bookstores that talk about how to find God's will for your life. But it's something that every Christian desires. I want to know God's will for my life, but we're so bad at asking that question in the right way. So many times what we mean is, I want to know God's secret will for my life. Who am I going to marry and when? Instead of, I want to know God's revealed will for my life. Like, what kind of man has God called me to be right now? We're really bad at asking that question the wrong way. But here is really good news. That in this passage, we have the revealed will of God for your life. Every person in here. God's will is for you to be a servant. It is the will of God for you to be a servant of God and a servant of God's people. This is God's will for you. And the sooner you hear that and the faster you respond, the faster you begin to do the will of God for your life. The faster you begin to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. This is why we're saved. This is part of the reason, you know, why the Lord has saved us is so that we would be servants of God. And don't think about this in the wrong way. Everybody's on the same level here. This is the, you never graduate past this lowly title and these lowly tasks in the kingdom. It's not like, oh yeah, I was a servant in the kingdom and now I'm not a servant in the kingdom anymore. In other words, your your rank never gets higher than this in the kingdom. John and James are still servants of the Lord. Even though they're in eternal glory, they're still servants. You have been saved to be a servant. A servant, son, and daughter of the king. Again, there's nothing easy about this. The Bible, when it starts to deal in this this realm of sin, of turning away from selfish ambition and, and orienting your life towards others and serving others, it begins to use language that's really, really uncomfortable, like deny yourself, take up your cross. Self crucifixion language. Is used. This is what is required to turn away from selfish ambition and to reorient yourself towards others. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, this is one of many places where God's commandments get steep. Not in the sense that he doesn't empower us to obey, but in the sense of really be reminded how hard this is to count others more significant than yourself. And you've got to be intentional about this. You've got to be intentional about this. Just as a practical application, I want to encourage you to pray Pray for this every day this coming week. Every morning this coming week. Pray, Lord, help me count others more significant than myself. In other words, don't just be a hearer of God's word. Let's hear with the desire to obey the Lord Jesus. 
in this passage. And in case you're here today and you're not a Christian and you think being a servant sounds about like the worst thing you could possibly imagine. I want to flip that upside down this morning. Being a servant is the greatest privilege in this world. And I mean that in sincerity. To be a servant of God and of God's people is, a, is the greatest privilege in this world. You could even say it this way. If you had a thousand lives to live in this world, you would be wise if you spent every single one of them serving God and serving God's people. You wouldn't waste any of it. Charles Hatton Spurgeon says it this way. If God has called you to be a servant, why would you stoop to be a king? In other words, if this is the will of God, then everything else you can imagine is a downgrade. The psalmist says it this way. Psalm 84 verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Being a servant of God is good. Our king is kind. He is for us and not against us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he will empower us to do everything that he commands us to do. And the best part of it all is we're never alone when we serve him. He's with us always, even to the end of the age. The greatest privilege in this world is being a servant of the Lord. Jesus finishes in verse 28. And he reminds us that he's, he hasn't called us to do anything that he hasn't done personally and perfectly. And you know the hypocrisy. Maybe you've seen it in your life of somebody preaches at you, but they don't practice it. You never get that with Jesus. He calls you to humble service in the kingdom of God. And then he says this, even as, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In other words, that even as there draws this connection. It's this comparison. He's calling you to do something even as the Son of Man did something. That even as reminds us that Jesus is our supreme example if you want to know what a holy human being looks like, you look at Jesus. He's our hero. He is the one that we seek to imitate in every area of our life. He's the, the one who walks the trail of holiness and righteousness before us. This is why we pray or should pray often, Lord, make me like Jesus. Well, here he tells us why he came into this world. And he actually tells you why he didn't, and then he tells you why he did. He says it this way, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Now let's remind ourselves, he could have come to be served. In other words, wait a second, <laughs> he had every right to come to be served. And have the, the red carpet rolled out, and all creation praise him. When the maker became incarnate. He could have come to be served. 
He's the highest of kings. Heaven and the highest of heaven cannot contain the glorious reputation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is God, the eternal son incarnate. He could have come to be served. But instead, Jesus says he came to serve. Now think about the contrast. The one with all authority. The one with incomprehensible glory is telling you this morning that he didn't come into this world to be served. He came to serve. And think about how the argument proceeds from greater to lesser. If that's what he did, if that's what marked his life, the king, how much more should that mark my life as a follower of Jesus Christ? That's the argument there. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is right. In this passage, it should not be so among us. Selfish ambition should have no place in the Christian life. Pride should have no place in the Christian life. Why? Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Every one of us should hang these words like a banner over every relationship that we have in this world. I did not come to be served, but to serve. Again, it's one of those things that you're going to have to revisit often in the Christian life. You're going to have to remind yourself often because you're going to find yourself thinking selfishly. Lord, why am I doing this again? Why am I, why am I thinking about myself here? Why, why are my self-interests rising up to the top of my mind in the forefront of my heart. Why is this the case, Lord Jesus? You said you didn't come to be served, but you came to serve. Why am I I doing this again? Make me like you, Lord Jesus. It's the fight of faith in the Christian life. But Jesus is more than our supreme example because in his service... He does what no one else could ever do. And this is how he ends verse 28. To give his life as a ransom for many. Now you can imitate Jesus in a lot of ways. You can't do that. There's no human being that can ransom another, that can give their life as a ransom for any other human being. This is the work of King Jesus, the Savior of sinners. So he is our supreme example, but praise God, he's more than that. He is our Savior. He came to serve us in the ultimate way. He tells us he came to give his life. Think about that language. Jesus came to give his life for you. That means he held nothing back from you. If you just thought about it for a moment, how could the gospel be any better than it is? And, or you could ask it a different way. What more could Jesus Christ have done than what Jesus did? And the answer is nothing. He gave it all. There was nothing left to give. He gave his life. You can't make the gospel any better than it is. The apostle Peter reminds us. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. 
verses 18 and 19, he reminds Christians that we were not ransomed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the cost of our redemption. That's the currency. That's what was paid for our redemption is the precious blood of Jesus, his life. Not perishable things like gold and silver. Do you understand that all the wealth of Warren Buffett, all of it, Every quarter that the man has ever made in his entire life, the mega billions, will one day, and you could even say soon, rust to nothing but dust. It will rust into oblivion. It is perishable, Peter says. And even if all the wealth of Warren Buffett were amassed even right now, To try to pay for your redemption, your ransom, it wouldn't knock a dent in your sin debt to God. You wouldn't even be able to tell that the account balance dropped even a little bit. Listen to the words of Psalm 49, verse 7. Turn there with me. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man in this world can ransom you from sin. So what did Jesus do? He didn't bring perishable things. He brought his life. The Son of Man came to give his life. His holy life, his spotless life, his undefiled life, his righteous life, his blameless life, his perfect, sinless, never sinned once life. And he gave it up as a sacrifice for sinners. Held nothing back. He came to give his life as a ransom, verse 28 says, that word refers to the payment that is made as well as the effect of that payment is deliverance from slavery. So the redemption price and redemption. And this is telling us the effects of the death of Jesus, that his life is going to be like a price that was paid for our sin, but it's going to have the effect of a full release from slavery to sin. Who did he do this for? Verse 28 says, for the many. Now the word for there, that little preposition is an awesome word. Because it reminds us that Jesus is our substitute. He came to give his life as a ransom for, in place of, instead of, many. It clarifies that the death was deserved not for Jesus, but for the many who sinned against God. What he's doing on the cross, he's doing instead of, in place of, for the many. This is why he came. This is a purpose statement. 
of the incarnation. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is our substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross just like he said he would. And he did it for us. He did it as our sin-bearing substitute. And what is the effect of his death? Redemption. Ransom. We have been ransomed through the blood of Jesus. That means that Jesus kicked the prison doors wide open and we walked out. We're not in bondage anymore. He really saves us from our sins. This is what makes Christianity so glorious. It's not just Christ our example, but Christ our substitute. It's not just good advice, it's good news of salvation. He accomplished something on our behalf. And this glorious gospel, this is what shapes the why behind the what of every Christian. This Glorious condescension of the exalted Son of Man. The message of the cross humbles us. Why? Because He's doing something for us there. I deserve to be crucified. Not Him. I deserve death. I deserve wrath. Not Him. And yet He pours out righteousness and ransom and deliverance from sin. And we deserve none of it. Do you see how the message of the cross humbles us? We deserve none of it. Puts everything in perspective. Lastly, who are the many? Who are the ransomed? Scripture answers this question in several different ways. In Ephesians chapter 1, they're called the elect. In Ephesians chapter 2, they're called the spiritual temple of the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 5, this group is called the bride of Jesus Christ. The church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, this group is called a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And listen, in Revelation chapter 7, this group is, 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 set, is, is described in this way. It's a multitude that no man can number. It's a multitude that no man can number. If you were to stand at the biggest concert that you could possibly imagine... And you would imagine just staring at crowds that you cannot see the end of people. That's the many. Revelation chapter 4 says that this group will be comprised of every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue. Are going to be followers of the land. They're going to be gathered into the many. And then I love Revelation 22 verse 17 says it this way, anyone who desires to come to Christ, you can be part of the many. The one who desires to come says, let him come and take the water of life freely without money. You need Jesus to serve you with his ransom paying death. You need Jesus to serve you With his ransom paying death before you ever dream of serving Jesus. Our hands are not clean enough to serve the Lord. Apart from his atonement for our sins. And the good news is in this text. Jesus says that he is willing to serve you. It's why he came into this world. He says 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and listen, to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name this morning for your grace and for the gospel. And Lord Jesus, we pray for grace this morning to follow you wherever you go. Lord, we pray that you would instruct our minds, that you would prepare us for suffering. God, we pray that you would make us faithful followers of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing to our God.